Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today in our conversation with the insightful Mary Ann Wilburn, we unearth a treasure trove of garden wisdom that you simply can't afford to overlook. We look into how gardening isn't just about plants. It's a transformative experience that involves cultivating ideas, patience, and a deep connection with the earth. Marianne is an esteemed opinion columnist for the American Horticultural Society's The American Gardener and is a contributing editor at GardenRant.com. She authored the exciting book, Tropical Plants and How to Love Them, her first book, Big Dreams and Small Gardens. Marianne's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Better Homes and Gardens. In this episode, we talk about challenging the norms that may be holding you back in your gardening endeavors. If you're tired of the fear of getting it wrong, her perspective will be a breath of fresh air, empowering you to embrace gardening as a personal and creative journey. The episode dives into the riveting debate between native and non-native plants, urging you to reconsider your approach. Marianne's insights on adaptation of environmental changes will reshape your understanding of the ever-evolving nature of ecosystems within your garden. You'll not want to be left behind in outdated gardening practices while discovering the keys to balance and resilience in your green space. Picture a garden that's not just visually stunning, but meticulously planned with patience and thoughtfulness. Marianne emphasizes the art of visualizing your garden, unlocking the secrets to success often overlooked. This episode is for those who want to break free from the constraints of conventional gardening, inviting you to embark on a journey of self-discovery, adaptability, and the art of patiently nurturing a fulfilled gardening life. This is episode 144, Breaking the Garden Mold, a conversation on gardening constraints and adaptations with Marianne Wilburn on the Garden Question podcast. Marianne, how are today's gardeners being constrained? It's a really interesting question because it's not just in one way, in a yes, no. It's in so many different ways we've got these constraints. It's in our tastes what we're allowed to like and what we should like. It's in the choices of plants that we are given at the garden centers. It's our ability to plant what we want to plant in HOAs, in neighborhoods. So we've got a lot of no's coming at us all the time. I am and have always been a person of yes (laughs) and Yes, with responsibility, obviously, not just yes, but I want to look for the positive aspects of it, not the negative aspects of gardening. I'm just seeing a lot of no's out there now. I don't know if you've seen this as well, but 
this is something that I'm becoming more and more aware of it. Because uh, I have friends who want to garden and are terrified of doing the wrong thing. I never felt like that when I got started. I was afraid of losing something or perhaps not doing as well as I wanted to do in what I was growing. But I never was terrified about planting the wrong thing or making the wrong decision. That sort of was the interesting part to me. And I'm seeing more gardeners who are, as an analogy, the five-year-old in the kitchen who you say, hey, let's come and bake this cake. You come in with me, they're all excited, and you've harnessed all that energy, and you go in the kitchen and you start doing everything for them because they're doing it wrong. They start to do something and you say, no, not that way. Here, let me just crack that egg. Let me just add that flour. Let me just put that salt in. You're not doing it right. Very quickly, you may have a beautiful cake at the end, but you have an uninspired five-year-old who doesn't really want to bake with you again. I feel like we're increasingly doing that to our beginning gardeners, particularly those who may not have tastes in the current trend of garden design right now. We're not being able to express our personal taste or experiment in our garden as much without hearing that word no. Yeah, I just think that there are a lot of no's and they come with a moral judgment. For many gardeners who are just beginning this journey, they don't have enough knowledge to query that. They're going to assume that everybody else knows better than they do. It will just constrain them. They're not going to ask questions to say, why? Why is that? Why shouldn't I plant this? Or, hey, I really like this style. A really good example right now is formality in gardens is out. It's so yesterday. Plenty of people will say, that's great. Formal gardens are over-managed gardens and we're harnessing nature too tightly and all of those things. But there's a huge amount of people who are really turned on by that aesthetic. They're not as turned on by the naturalistic aesthetic. Or they want to have a little bit of both in their garden. I think that there is some level of judgment on, oh, you like that formal thing, huh? Don't you know that's really not the way we should garden now? We need to garden with much more flow and movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying this as somebody who loves a wild ornamental garden. And I don't mean, that's possibly too broad. I love movement. I love all different textures. Color, not necessarily in flowers only, but in foliage, in different colors throughout the season. Like right now, my garden is just alive with tawny colors, different shades of what I just call tawny. (laughs) I love that. But I have just put together a almost painfully formal geometric kitchen garden, renovated my kitchen garden. And I opened those gates to that coming out of the more wild garden. The contrast between those two things is so fabulous. I love it. If I take a picture of that formal garden and show it to people, oof, it looks very controlled because it is. 
I am controlled. And it's so cool. It's just really, it's beautiful. It's this beautiful contrast between these two worlds. I hate to see people thinking, oh, I can't control nature like that. That's not okay. It's not the right thing to do. No, this is garden. It's art. It's creation. It's experimentation. If that is your taste, go with it. What we're supposed to be responsible about is not becoming the spray warrior where you're dominating nature with incredibly harmful things in order to achieve those goals, or you're not allowing a certain amount of give and take in the landscape because not under your watch. But the idea of a formal garden is still okay. It's your taste. You don't have to love a naturalistic aesthetic. I'm not sure if I made that completely clear. Yeah, I like to take different elements from different styles, some formal elements, if that's appropriate in this particular garden that I'm designing, or the naturalistic or the more flowing organic lines in the garden. In my thought, there's no right way or wrong way to do it. The creative side of you and the plant materials that are going to thrive in those areas is the way I like to do it. Yes. So that brings us to another way where gardeners are being constrained is that idea of the right plant for the right place, which is such a wonderful idea and right on target. But we're adding more layers of definition to right. That means not only correct for the particular ecosystem that plant is in or that site that plant is in, but what is its passport status? (laughs) What is its nationality? Where does it come from? And is it native or not native? That brings in, again, that moral level of gardening, that layer on there. Native plants are wonderful. I have a huge amount of native plants in my garden, but I also have a lot of exotic plants. Perhaps that's not the right it is the right word, technically. You, you've got native and exotic plants. Exotic sounds very exotic, tropical, which is, I also have a lot of tropical plants in my garden. But plants that are non-native, let's just say, native and non-native plants, if they work well in my garden and do what they're supposed to be doing, then I'm all for them. I'm not going to apologize for them. But I'm feeling like more people are looking at it as this needs to be a garden of native plants. We only need to garden with native plants. We're doing that even as our climate is sending us messages that we have to be adaptable. Our plants have to be adaptable. Adapting more and more difficult situations for us. So we're having to curate a lot of these native plants more heavily. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I want plants that do well, that are best adapted. And yes, I've got to fiddle a little bit and I've got to play with them and I've got to help a few and stop a few others. But overall, I'm not going to look at a plant's passport and say, you just can't be in this garden. Because the reality is, if I step out of the picture completely, My woods, my cultivated areas are going to be overrun with whatever is best adapted right now to this climate. And that doesn't necessarily and probably doesn't mean a native plant by the lines that are drawn in the chronological, the line that is drawn that says this is native and this is not native. 
It's going to be things that are well adapted. I think that's an inconvenient truth, if I can use those two words together, of this whole situation is that some of these invasive plants are incredibly well adapted to these new situations. They're incredibly well adapted to areas that man has destroyed, to areas that have been completely decimated by human intervention. And whether that's roadsides, industrial areas, housing developments, whatever those things are, there are plants that are coming in, happy to regreen them. Then we say, oh, no, not that plant. Or even use words like this plant is destroying the planet, which I have seen that way too often. And I just think, really? Okay. How's the plant destroying the planet? I'll get that. These are all questions that we should be asking and not just staying with the easy answers of native plant is best. Yes, we have these ecosystems that have adapted over time, but it doesn't mean that stops right now, that on our watch, there is no more change. There still has to be change and the pace of change is more rapid uh, because of the industrial revolution. But I personally am really heartened by the plants that still in the midst of all of that met those roadsides and industrial wastelands and railroad areas. We've got a railroad yard nearby and to watch the plant life that still manages to spring out of that. It seems exceptionally arrogant to me to say, no, you're bad and you're good. I think we should be thankful that there is germination and there is life. As gardeners, we can be annoyed. As farmers, we can be annoyed because of the workload that invasive plants can bring to us. But I'm wondering if on a planetary level, if we should be quite so annoyed. <laughs> yeah. You were telling me previously about a story of, of a garden along the railroad. Would you tell that story? Oh, yes. Yes. I have a friend. She's a gardener, intermediate sort of level of gardening. And she took it upon herself to create a garden along our rail yard here, which is a pretty big wasteland. She got a lot of support from the community. She got a little bit of city funds. She got a lot of community funds and went about buying plants, also being given plants from local nurseries. That's all looking really good. Then she gets requests from a couple of her donors of what is her plant list. She gives that out, not thinking too much about it. She has a lot of wonderful plants for pollinators. And two different donors come back to say, I'm taking back my donation if there's non-native plants in the mix. I want to have native plants only. She's not really aware of the arguments back and forth in this because she's not in media or in horticulture and is blown away by this. This is one of the, those examples of what no does to the creative spirit. It starts to cast a pall on it that she's not planting the right thing. She's planting daylilies and that's not the right plant. She's play, planting Angostaki, it's not the right plant. And these plants that, that she loved and adored and are attracting enormous amounts of pollinators, like just something as silly as bronze fennel, unbelievable amount of 
flies and flying insects, wasps, little bees on it, but it's not native. Therefore, it's not good. And it changed the way that she thought about it, and it changed her ideas to expand the garden and move on with it. It's a beautiful little garden, but I thought, gosh, what was gained in that? I can see what's gained in her doing the garden, but what's gained in coming with this critical, we need native plants only in this railroad yard? (laughs) This is now a man-made environment at this point. These are not native soils anymore. This is not a native environment. The garden that grew from that, it's not going to be pure in that way. So you're shutting down the desire of somebody to beautify a space because they're not using the right plants in what you have defined as the right plants. In any case, it's a lovely little garden there. I was really proud of her efforts, and so many people were. But there was just this segment that knows better than she did. That's a yucky place to be. Do you think we're canceling valuable plants? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, I think that. Plants that would work in the situation, but you're not going to use them because they're not natives? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not advocating for putting invasive plants in your landscape. Do not get me wrong. I'm just saying this idea between looking at a plant's passport and saying that is, uh, no, that's not something that should not be planted here. The irony of doing that in a, you're in a subdivision, let's say, in one of the most artificial systems that you can be in is a lot in a subdivision. And you're saying this plant can be here and this plant can't. That's just crazy to me. It's just crazy. You should be so thankful for the plants who can cope with that subsoil, who can break up that subsoil and can live with very lean, depleted soils as you start to build up your soils. Yes, there are some native plants that can do that 100%. But what if they're not plants that you're particularly interested in that are really going to excite you at first? We need excitement as gardeners. That's what gets us moving. And if you're stopping yourself because I can't have that plant because of this arbitrary line of what's native and what's not, when does a plant become native? How long does it have to be here? It's very easy to put that European colonization line in the sand. But what about plants that have moved here on their own that have come down from Canada, come up from Mexico 3,000 years before that? 300 years before that. What about those? We're talking about a planet. We're putting our anthro lines on it. It's just not quite right for me, but it sounds great. It's easy, right? We need easy answers as human beings to navigate our world sometimes. And things are more nuanced than that. Slogans that are very memeable, and we communicate in memes now, we communicate in quick one-liners that rhyme, that sound right. That's how we're communicating ideas instead of deeper conversations with one another, being very honest with one another. I think oftentimes we'll take a complex issue and try to simplify it or dumb it down to a point where you're really missing the point 
because it's really a complex question that you should be answering rather than this simple answer. And we run with the simple answer and miss the complex. I think we ought to be asking why more often. Yes, I think so too. That just because you ask why doesn't mean that you're trying to be confrontational or difficult. It means that you're trying to gain a greater understanding to see if you are wrong or if you are right as we move towards what's the best thing to do and how do I move through this space is, is by asking that question. People shouldn't be labeled for asking that question. We can't be reductionist in some of these questions. And I understand that it's necessary in industries. You had a garden center. There are many people, consumers and consumer gardeners, who will come into that garden center and want the absolute simplistic answer from you. And I understand that's what's got to be given. But if that's the case, then perhaps they shouldn't just be told, plant a native plant, it's best. That shouldn't be the simplistic answer for them. It might be more along the lines of plant, plants help your soil at first, then let's talk about the plants. And of course, the consumers say, I don't want to talk about myself. I want beauty right now. <laughs> okay, then let's look at some plants that can handle that soil right now. It doesn't matter about their passport, where they're from. Let's look at those. Instead of giving them this easy, feel-good native plants, because they're going to end up with a landscape that they're not happy with. No. Almost certainly. And how do you feel about it? Do you think that, you know, handing people who don't really garden this parameter of put in native plants only is going to end up with them getting more into gardening as a whole? Yes, for maybe 5%, but... I think you've got to look at what's going to be successful. And success will breed more desire in the garden. Wetting the gardener's appetite or the consumer's appetite to do more because I'm successful. Because gardening can be so intimidating. And especially if you don't know anything about it and you don't have a desire really to learn any more than just keep the HOA off my back. It's really all I'm interested in. Success is going to breed more gardeners. If you give a gardener who's just right at the beginning of that journey, or a, say a consumer gardener at the beginning of that journey, this narrow parameter of what they can plant and what they are supposed to like, mm -hmm. and they're not successful with it and they don't like it, are they liable to keep gardening? I think the answer is no. You talking about the HOAs, that's the other area where we're getting the no's. No, you cannot plant this. No, you can't plant that. Only plant this type of thing in the front and this type of thing in the back. Or I wrote an article on this for American Horticultural Society's American Gardener, and that was the creative impulse that keeps a lot of us gardeners going because, yes, it's an intimidating discipline, but it's also extremely exhausting and a lot of energy. What can keep us going is the creative impulse. Spontaneity is shut down in an HOA. For instance, I come across a hoard of antique bricks. I brought them in and then I'm making new things with them. I'm making a little patio. I've got a little stoop near my front porch and I make a little drywall. 
oh, it's so exciting and I'm creating something fabulous. And here comes the HOA and says, nope, you need to file some paperwork for that. Nope, you need to take that down. All of a sudden, I've lost any desire to do it. For me, you tell me I got to file paperwork for this. I'm done. I'm out of here. Here we go. What are you telling me to plant? I'm just going to put it in and I'm going to dream of the house I will have someday outside of your evil clutches. But for a lot of people, it's just going to take out any desire to garden because they put those two things together. Permission and gardening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually thinking about it, permission and gardening, those two things go hand in hand in that type of world. And I think we're cultivating way more of that, not just in HOAs, but elsewhere. Permission. What am I allowed to plant? That doesn't spark curiosity. People are afraid of what their neighbors might do. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have tried to cultivate that instead of trying to allow free expression with parameters. Like you can't let your yard just become an obvious wasteland. We've gone beyond that where taste is regulated. You can't have a front bench in your front yard. I've seen that so many times on HOAs. Only one article of ornamentation. I'm actually quoting rules from my friend's HOA right now. If she has a gazing ball, for instance, she can't have a bird bath, that type of thing. This is all done in the name of just being afraid of your neighbors. But what if you have that crazy neighbor who's going to make their yard look nuts and affect your property values? In the name of that, we have got a very homogenous landscape. I don't particularly like that. I don't like it at all. I, I love free expression. I don't want a yard next to me that is a mess, but I think that there's ways of having easy rules to live by that don't need to completely stifle free expression in your gardening. I think there's an easy way to go. When it comes to HOAs, my husband and I, if there was an HOA, when we were looking at houses, we just said no. Are you in an HOA, Craig? No, I'm out on four acres and don't have to answer to anybody but the county. Yeah, and we had city regulations and those city regulations sometimes were onerous and annoying and depending on the code enforcement officer, very annoying. <laughs> but you could always try and change things too. But when it came to an HOA, even if it was a relaxed HOA, you go in and they say, oh, there's an HOA, but it's really relaxed. Nobody really pays attention. I think, oh, no, the potential is there for one officious person to get in charge. And that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. And so we just never did that. Yeah, I have clients that live in HOA communities and I've never had any problems with designs. It'd just be like off the wall stuff that they would come up with. You didn't have the right pine straw or mulch. You can't have a weed in your grass. I'm not against turf and I'm not against pretty turf, but that seems to get a lot of the garden community excited about turf grass and not having it. I think the challenge is perfection. They're looking for perfect turf. I, I just don't think it's bad to have a few weeds here and there at, at times. No, I don't either. I have a lot of turf, so to speak, here, open areas that if we didn't have, I say grass, but grass 
species, broadleaf species uh, in it. If we did not have that, we would just have forest all the way up to the house. That's the natural environment here. I love my woods, but I don't want them right up against the house. I want to be able to have areas cleared. So we keep those areas mowed, but they are made up of everything from dandelion and plantain to, unfortunately, Japanese stiltgrass, which is the bane of my existence. There is an invasive weed that is very well adapted to my stream valley. It's extraordinary how well adapted it is. I've got to have a little respect for it, honestly, even though I just hate it. But my turf is made up of all of those things, and we mow it, and it's green. And it provides this sort of void and mass space. There's the mass of the garden, the features in the garden and the woods, and then there's this void space of the green. Our eyeballs need that, too. Mm -hmm. And that turf, it sounds wrong to say turf, because when I think of turf, I think of golf courses and HOA lawns, but it's turf. That is a big sponge for the rain that comes down. I keep saying a lot of things about how grass does not do anything for the environment, and that's not true. That's not true at all. Yeah. But again, that's brought down to a very simplistic way of dealing with it for the masses. But I don't have a problem with turf. It's the perfection that's the problem. If you're going to be stressing and coating it with pesticides and herbicides, no, that's not good. Pendulum swings one way or another. So it's either absolutely spray the heck out of it or don't have it at all. Mm -hmm. Can we just have a middle ground? Is that right. possible, folks? <laughs> and I can understand where people are, want to minimize turf, maybe where they don't get the rainfall. I mean, I get over 50 inches a year, so I don't ever have to irrigate. And I've never sprayed my lawn and all the birds out there that are bouncing around in it and the rabbits and the crows and everything else. I say it's a wasteland, but I just don't see it in my turf or my grass or my meadow. If I don't mow it, I call it a meadow. And if I mow it, it's grass. And I have both. It's when I don't get a chance to mow it, it becomes a meadow. I'm living on 10 acres now, and that's why I'm so exhausted looking. But for the majority of my adult gardening life, I was in very small spaces with small city lots. And I am a rabid gardener. Taking the turf out of my yard was for me too, so that I could mm -hmm. have more space to grow the plants that I wanted to grow. But the reality for most people is that turf is the easiest thing for them to care for. They don't want to have to take care of a lot of plants. I think it's strange that we're seeing so many articles about take the grass out, remove the turf and put in a native plant perennial garden and fight for that. That's what you should be doing. And you think, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the majority of homeowners who would just like to have a pleasant outside space and don't want to be out there all the time? Because mm -hmm. a perennial beds or any type of beds Right from the moment that shovel hits the soil, that is going to be more work than mowing a lawn. Mm -hmm. It just is. And you can say it's not all day long. That's not true. It is right. much easier for me, even if I do not spray or don't care what's growing up there, taking a mower to that once a week or allowing it to grow up every couple weeks, what have you, is much, much easier. 
for people. And if you have them tear that out because it's easier for them to not have to mow and put in plants that need attention, that is odd. (laughs) I don't know. It's not only the plants that need the attention or are growing there, but it's the plants that you don't want to grow with them. People prefer manually taking care of the weeds, and that takes a lot of time. I've heard stories probably like you have. Oh, I hired somebody to go out there and take care of my weeds, and they pulled off all my valuable whatever plants. So you've got to have a horticultural knowledge to maintain those. Plus, it's not easy. You can't just hire a crew to come in and take care of it, or it's very unusual that you could. Not like you can hire the Mo Blow Go companies, which I know people have their opinions on those, but they do have a valuable service. When you can make it as easy as hiring a Mo Blow Go company and somebody can just hire untalented, most of the time, people to maintain your horticulture garden, then I think you'll lose more turf areas. Yes. At the end of the day, people have to have an interest in the plants or the money to write a check to pay somebody with more specialized knowledge to take care of it for them. I think that we're pushing the narrative of take out turf and add a perennial bed or a native perennial bed to everyone rather than those who are interested. What is going to happen to that native garden when the gardener is no longer there to maintain it? Yeah, that's the obvious question to ask. If we're having to curate these spaces, if we're having to constantly protect those native plants from the plants that are becoming better adapted, I think that this is the question that we need to be asking. It's a very important question. If these native plants are best adapted to these habitats, these different ecosystems, if they truly are the best adapted, then they don't need a lot of curation by us. But the fact of the matter is they do because there are other species that are coming in either through our hands, through import-export companies that bring seeds in, or gardeners that bring a plant in and it escapes, or all those things, or by their own migration because of climate change. These plants are better adapted, and they're going to tussle it out. So what happens when we stop taking care of that beautiful space? Doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. For instance, I go up to Mount Cuba up in Delaware, And wow, what a beautiful garden devoted to native plants. And I look at that, and this is probably complete heresy, but I look at this garden as a museum of our native flora or or what is considered native by our definitions of native. And it is very carefully curated. I remember once going up to the pond area, I was on a garden writer's tour, and I almost tripped over a young intern who had tweezers and was tweezing out little seedlings that needed weeding out with tweezers. And I remember I had just been in this headspace of, oh my gosh, how come I can't do this? How come mine doesn't look this great? And I tripped over her And I thought, oh, okay, that's why. Because I don't have interns with tweezers. Most people don't. And 
she's on those invasive seedlings faster than they can germinate almost. But the majority of us cannot be. And it takes a lot of curation for that. Should we be a little bit more aware that things are changing and other plants are better adapted? Or should we stay in these very strong ideas of, nope, that plant is wrong and this plant is right? Obviously, you can tell what I think what the answer should be. I think we should be looking at the ways that our flora, our fauna is adapting and being heartened by that and thankful for that and studying it instead of trying to constantly push back because it's changing. Mm-hmm. Things are changing. Isn't it better to watch some of those changes? And yes, and I'll, but I'm sure there's many listeners out there who say, but what about this species that's disappearing and this one's disappearing? And yes, I understand that. I see that. But we also need to go back to the fact that we've had a, many extinctions and, and species disappear. And I'm not saying that's great, but I'm saying it is a natural process that may be faster now. But other species are becoming stronger, and I'm just interested. I want to study them more rather than just be depressed by them all the time. I want to be excited by what's happening instead of constantly depressed by it. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you think there are less plants available to us today than there used to be? It's hard for me to fully answer that because I have only been gardening for about 25 years and being really aware of plants and what's available for probably 15 to 20 of those years, like really aware Mm -hmm. of what's available. So my experience is limited. But what I will say is that I do read a lot And that's what drew me into horticulture was my reading. And I look at what is in the old timey garden writers, what is discussed and what's talked about and names that are thrown around. They're not available the way that they were available. But what is available is a knockout rose. What is available is the newest hydrangea. We have a lot of choices today in very specific genera. Does that make sense? I do not pretend to be the expert in this space at all. I just want to be a voice for questioning the hard line that's given to people in gardening. That's all. And that questioning could end up with me being handed the answer, Marianne, you are wrong. And this is why. And a reasoned argument is definitely going to change my mind. It's changed my mind many times on many things. But it also could end with me opening something that needs to be opened and talked about. That's all. I'm just trying to push back a little bit, especially for concepts that it seems that when you ask the question, you are shut down quickly by really easy, simplistic answers. And your head, your child brain, that's the questioning part of your brain, says, but what about, like you were saying, but what about this? We were taught for so long in schools that this planet has gone through exceptional changes. One continent into seven continents. 
swamps, primeval swamps into barren deserts. The dinosaurs weren't walking through Arizona and enjoying the sun and the sand. (laughs) Those are major changes to environments. And yes, some of them happened over a long period of time. Some of them happened very quickly. Like you can't get much more catastrophic than a meteor hitting the earth, blocking out the sun and causing a mass Mm -hmm. extinction. And yet this planet managed to overcome that and life continued. And we're not focusing on those positives. We're only focusing on the negatives of our time right now. Okay, so I understand all that. I've seen all that in my textbooks, but I can't apply that reasoning to right now because on my watch, nothing can change. Species cannot change. Extinctions cannot happen. Habitats cannot evolve. For instance, if I'm looking at pollinators on a native plant and a non-native plant, and the native pollinator is all over the native plant, and it should be these two things have evolved together, and that's a beautiful thing. And they're just maybe 20% of the time on the non-native plant. That makes sense because they like their favorite food. If I'm given a choice of foods in a buffet, I'm going to go for the one that I like the best and then is good for me. I might try a little bit of this one. I might start to evolve to that. I might start eating more of it, but just because we don't see that native pollinator on that non-native plant at the exact same ratio doesn't mean that they can't evolve to use it. It means that they are evolving, they are adapting, and we need to do more studies on that. How is our fauna adapting to changes in our flora? We need more studies on that, not ones that just keep telling us, yes, they prefer native plants. Yes, of course they do. These things have evolved together, but we're seeing changes. So let's look at the adaptations. Agree. And don't be afraid of the answers. If those answers disrupt what you think to be true, that's what true scientific method is about. It's not there to cement what we know to be true or what we think we know to be true. It's there to make us go, oh, oh, wow, why is this happening? And then ask more questions. How can we come into an adaptation in the process of adaptation and evolution and think we can really see it with a 30-year lifespan or 40-year lifespan, right? We We can just see a moment in time of that. I think poking our head out of the box and looking at the possibilities goes a lot longer way than Let's put us all in this box and seal the lid and nothing else is going to happen because that's easy. That's the easy way is just stay in our static little moment in time of the universe and say it's always going to be this way and it's not. It's evolving and we're in a dynamic world and that includes our plants and our plant choices and so much. And it also includes Mm -hmm. us. I think human beings are taken out of the natural order of that were separated. And saying that doesn't mean that human beings haven't done some terrible things environmentally to the planet. 100% they have. But taking us out of the equation, the ways that we adapt and evolve ourselves, 
in our thinking, in our methods, pretending like we're something separate. We're part of this planet too. If the Industrial Revolution has changed the course of the climate and how much more quickly things have to adapt, okay, that has happened. Now we can try and pull back a little and not continue to add to that problem, but watch the world adapt around it and not be too afraid of that. I don't know. There's so many questions there, and it's difficult to ask them. Because you can just be so quickly labeled a climate denier or a this or a that. And you're like, no, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, look, we have adapted. This species has adapted. The planet is adapting. Why are we not capable of it moving forward? If I can just put it into people's head, don't be afraid to ask questions. If there are people around you that are immediately going to shut you down, perhaps those people shouldn't be around you. You need to look for more and better conversations with people who want to invite conversation mm -hmm. and discussion. Mm -hmm. Talking about something is not going to make it true. It's just going to talk about it and maybe open up other areas of inquiry. That is so important. As a society, we are shutting down conversation. So much can be gained from those conversations. And I'm not talking about how we label things. Have a brave conversation. Have a, an honest conversation. Truly, sit down and let the ideas flow. Mm -hmm. If somebody lets their blood rise, and I'm talking horticulturally, you wouldn't think that there are hot topics horticulturally. People who are not in horticulture would be like, what on earth do you talk about? Which plant is prettier? There are some really hot-button topics in horticulture, and they deserve discussion. And not just discussion from one side, because that's the way we need to look at it. Yeah, yeah. What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building a garden? People, when they're putting in a landscape, um, and oftentimes, most of us can't afford to hire a garden designer, so we're doing it on our own and with the resources that we have, without the benefit of a garden designer who can very quickly nip some things in the bud that would be bad ideas. We're forced to do this ourselves. One of the problems with that is putting things into our designs. I want to put a bed here and we just start digging it out. Two of the things that I would say for gardeners to really think about is before you're putting those beds in, outline those beds with rope or hose or something and then live with them for three weeks. Get all excited in the spring and you, oh, I'm going to put a bed in here. And you just start breaking into the soil. And once you've broken into the soil, with the shovel and you put that kind of effort in, you don't want to go back and say, oh, that wasn't the best place for that. Live with it by outlining it and looking at it every day from different angles in your house, as you come down your walkway, as you're looking up from the sidewalk. And you can just see the outline of the bed. How is that going to work? Instead of trying to look at it in an abstract way, oh, I want a bed there. Another way is to somehow create the structure for the actual size that a plant is going to be. I will do that with bamboo canes. I'm lucky I have some bamboo. Some people say you're not lucky you got bamboo on your property. I've got a little bit on, on the back end. And I'll cut a bamboo cane to give me an idea of the height of something. So I can really 
I can't create the structure of a small tree with bamboo, but I can take one bamboo pole and you could do this with PVC too. If you have just a couple PVC things that you can couple together and you can put it up in that spot and have somebody hold it and you stand back and go, oh, that's going to be too tall. <laughs> that is Because you can instantly visualize it. Mm -hmm. Very few people are blessed with the ability to visualize the actual size and shape of things. Giving yourself as many aids in that when you're designing a space is really a good thing to do. Do you agree with that? Is that too much work? I think that's a great way to look at it. That's the way I do is I try to put plants in locations that are not going to overgrow their space. I like your suggestion to judge the height because I, I hadn't thought about that. That way you don't have to prune or shear all the time to keep it in bounds. You grow a healthier plant and you don't rob yourself of the natural beauty and blends. Yes. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you've got a, a sort of a mature tree or shrub that you get to just prune for the fun of it, mm -hmm. for the joy and the creation of just enhancing the natural shape of it yeah. rather than having to beat it back. The other thing I would say with regards to that is to always look at the tags of a plant and look at the maximum height that the tag gives you as the minimum mm -hmm. height in your head. If it says this tree grows 10 to 12 feet, assume it grows 12 to something because th these heights are almost always underestimated that there's marketing aspects to that. Sometimes there's just this plant has been on the market and we've tested it for the last three to four years and we don't really know what it's going to do mm -hmm. in 10 or 15 years. So always use the maximum that they give you as your minimum. Start there. I would even go beyond the tags and, and try to look it up if it's possible to yeah. it, it on several sources to find out what that size is. Yeah, but I think the majority of us need AIDS visualization. Uh, you said you're not one of those guys you can visualize. That is a gift that I have come across here and there with people who are just so good at that. As you move through gardening and you do more and more of it and your experience grows, certainly your powers of visualization get better mm -hmm. because you have more experience with certain plants. But some people can really visualize in crazy ways. The majority of us, we need aids. So give yourself those aids and have patience. That's the other thing I would say to people, have patience. I know people don't want to hear that, but there is nothing like growing up with a landscape. I know that it's hard because you want an instant landscape. So you can use some fun plants, particularly tropical plants, to create a very instant landscape. But to watch something that you've put in at a, a small size, slowly grow and mature. It's extraordinary to watch a landscape come together. It helps cultivate patience within you for other places in your life. The last thing that I would say to gardeners, because we, I think we've hit that whole no, don't ask questions, etc., is I would say to regard maintenance of a garden, not as maintenance, but as stewardship. Change the way that you look at maintaining a garden because maintenance is a yucky word maintenance is oh i gotta go out and mow the lawn i gotta go out and cut those perennials back it's a heavy lift mm -hmm. all the time thinking about your landscape that way and it becomes something to do if you think about it instead 
as an opportunity to observe your garden, to see what it's offering you, to ask more questions, to take care of the landscape that you have created to become what you want it to become. If you're looking in all these ways, you've expended resources, time, energy, money. Be a steward of all of those things and be a steward of your little part of this planet and the privilege that is. Whether that's a window box in a busy city or a little balcony or two acres or three acres or ten acres, it's a privilege. It's a beautiful one. Looking at it as I am steward of this space for this time that I'm here with it, rather than I'm just the schlepper who has to schlep. (laughs) It is a profound change in your brain. There's always going to be points where you're, oh gosh, I've got to do that. I've got a few on my mind, right? I'm sure you do too. But the more that I look at it, like I, I get to be with this garden and learn from it in the time that I have here. That's a pretty cool thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. What garden myth would you like to smash? I've seen this so many times, and that is blast aphids off. I wrote about this in my first book, actually. Blast aphids off of your whatever, whatever plant it is with a strong jet of water. And yeah, you'll blast the aphids off, but you'll often break the plant in the bus, <laughs> <laughs> particularly lightweight ones. That used to be, I used to look at that and think, wait a minute, that's, that doesn't make sense. But that's not really a garden myth. What's your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is really being in the garden memory. And that is running around my parents' vegetable garden as a little girl of probably four or five with my cousins catching fireflies in Iowa. We lived in Iowa for a period of time while my father was at university. That is such a strong memory. We probably had this tiny little amount of corn, not very much, but running through the corn and just being immersed in that outside space and the wonder of the of the fireflies. When we moved back here to the East Coast, because my family moved to California. I grew up in California for the most part. We don't have fireflies back there. And when we came back to the East Coast 20 years ago, reliving that wonder over these miraculous little beacons flying in the air was one of the best things. And it brought me instantly back to that space. It's really of being in the garden and rather than popping a tomato in my mouth or weeding with my dad, because I I had to do all those things. Mm -hmm. When you start to get into having to do work in the garden, the memories get very bad because I didn't want to do that work when I was a teenager or what helped dig potatoes or that type of thing. I prefer the ones of just being in the garden as a child and just being around growing things. The garden for my father was an ability to remove himself from work, from holding down several jobs, being at school, looking after a family, all those things. He grabbed onto that garden like a thirsty man in the desert. He loved to mow the lawn and just be out there smelling the grass. We had a tiny little plot and I think it was like a half an acre or something. And working in the garden, it really saved him, he used to say to me. <laughs> Why did you decide to pursue gardening as a profession? Shortly after I finished my university degree, and that was in uh, archaeology, 
I had my first child, my son, and I wanted to stay home with him. So the trajectory of my life shifted. I always in my adult life, I had been gardening, very interested in gardening. That's just something that I did. I think honestly that I started to put all of that academic, because I'm very academically motivated and excited. And I'm one of those geeks who loves school, who would happily, if I could drop everything right now and go back and get a PhD, I would do it. Heartbeat. I'm one of those apes. For fun, huh? Yeah. My son's at university right now. He's just like, I can't handle the classes anymore. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what I wouldn't do to be sitting in a classroom. Don't want to do online stuff, but love classroom situations. In any case, I think that I put all of that academic desire, that desire to study and that curiosity and all of that into something that I loved to do, which was horticulture. I became a voracious reader in gardening and in horticulture. I used to write little travel articles and things like that for a local paper. I've always enjoyed writing. I love it. I love working with words. I love playing with words. I started to put those two things together. It just felt so natural to write about these things that I was experiencing in the garden. This is literally just before blogs, starting in 2008, 2009. I pitched a local paper and they took the column and a few other local papers took the column and I started to write and I got involved with professional organizations that got bigger and I just went from there. I'm not a garden writer that can do this without having a garden. If I'm not working in the garden and truly have my mind and brain working in the garden as well, I can't write about it. I get writer's block. It's hard for me to write about things I'm not doing. I think that's how I got started. I had to really think about that question. I thought, I think that's what I did. I think I'd put all of that academic while I'm changing diapers and becoming a domestic goddess in my own right. I think that I was putting all of my academic energy into horticulture. I don't consider myself a horticulturist because I always give that designation to people who have studied horticulture at university. But I look at plants very academically and also artistically. I always want to know more. I'm always open to learning more. Would you tell us a funny garden story? All of my funny gardening stories, this is so wrong, but they all involve my husband destroying my plants. That's just not fair, isn't it? Destroying my plants, like mowing trees that I planted in, and he didn't notice. They're funny now. They weren't funny then. (laughs) I think one of those funny stories for me, which I don't know how funny it is to you, but is coming from lack of knowledge when I was very early in my gardening journey. I was excited by verbascum species, and I read a lot about the verbascum that Christopher Lloyd used at Great Dixter. I wanted verbascum in my garden. And this is mullion. There were some available at garden centers. There weren't a lot. I didn't know a lot of really specialty garden centers. There were verbascum growing all along the roadsides here in Maryland and Virginia. And this is verbascum thapsus, a just common mullion. But they're still, they're absolutely beautiful. Some of them candelabra shaped and what have you. I knew nothing about what verbascum really was. I just assumed it was a plant and it 
could be collected and, and put. So I went to a remote area of a roadside. Just verbascum grows so well in disturbed areas, so well in disturbed areas. And so there was this industrial area where nobody would care that I was digging up this plant. I dug this fully mature verbascum and then nurtured it at home. And also, even though I knew that it wasn't a bad thing to be digging this little plant in this, I think it was in the railroad yard, if I'm remembering properly, that wasn't a big deal. Nobody was going to miss it. I still felt, oh, I shouldn't be digging this. Dig it up and bring it to my garden. I had no money for plants. Then tried to nurture this thing because it was having a heck of a time living, only to find that they were biennial and it was on its way out. I had gone to all this trouble and trying to take care of it. And every day, I look, oh, look, it's getting a little bit better. And I find out later, they're biennials. Yeah. It's going. But what it did do is it did drop its seeds on its way out into my garden. And the next year, I had rosettes. And then the year after that, I had some verbascum. But it makes me laugh that I was thinking I was getting away with something, digging this plant and so excited to have it. And then it was dying on me. I don't know how funny that is. It does remind me that our knowledge is constantly growing. There's so much left to learn. Yeah, I learned that lesson about verbascum, but I haven't mastered the art of growing peonies from seed yet, which is a very special thing. I'm trying to get Peonio bavada to germinate and grow, and, and I'm not doing terrific. Yeah. Let's face that. It's constant knowledge gain. What is the most valuable advice that someone gave you that you're still using today? It has to do with that visualization of plants in the landscape. I got that advice from Pam Harper, who had recently passed away this last summer, who was a great garden writer. He wrote Color Echoes and Time-Tested Plants, still terrific books. Because she was 93 when she died and had been gardening in one place for 60 years. She had a, a fantastic perspective when it came to patience with things, with plants, and the ultimate size that something would be. Because she'd had to take so many things out mm. over the years, things that she'd planted as a young gardener, huge trees at great expense. Just talking to her and walking with her through her garden then watching her when we would be at a plant swap or we would be with friends and she would say, no, I'm not going to take that because that's going to become this. And seeing her be very discerning, that taught me a lot about patience and being careful with what I'm planting. Mm-hmm. I'm not planting something just to plant it, which also goes back to a bit of advice that Dan Hinckley gave in his book, Wincliffe. Don't just plant something because you need something in a place because you're not going to be happy with it. It's much better that you plant something that you love mm-hmm. and that you're happy with because you will end up taking that out or you will end up being depressed by it. One of the two. Those two things, I think, go together fairly smoothly. So much advice that we get just flavors our gardening, doesn't it, in little ways. Mm-hmm. There may be one big aha moment, like reading in in Dan Hinckley's book about don't plant something that's you just to fill space. That's a big aha moment. But most of the time, it's just little things where people influence our world with their sense of patience or their sense of perspective or whatever it is. That brings me in mind to say, 
cultivate as in terms of advice for other gardeners, get off of your phone and cultivate relationships with gardeners in your world who are real, who you can sit across the dining room table with, who you can go to a plant swap with, who you can talk to at a garden center with, cultivate those personal relationships you can go on a tour with. Come and tour with me in the UK. I think I have two spots left next spring because that's where you're going to learn the most. And I am not saying that there's nothing to be learned on social media or online. Of course there is. And of course there are relationships that can be forged in that space. I have forged many myself. But without a doubt, the relationships that I have forged with other gardeners face-to-face or through a one-on-one correspondence. Now, that could be through a social media DM platform, direct messaging platform, or email, or actual letters. Those are the relationships that have taught me the most about what I love to do mm-hmm. in horticulture. They have given me the most opportunities. Being part of Garden Writers Association, which is now Garden Calm International and Garden Media Guild in the UK, has allowed me to meet people that have added so much to my knowledge base and given me more opportunities to, to increase it. Just from sitting on the bus with somebody, like one of the great friendships in my gardening life happened because I was sitting on a bus at a tour with an empty seat next to me, praying that no one would sit down. Please just let me zone out for the next hour on the way to this garden. But no, this guy sat and we got talking and then we just got talking more. That's Dan Bonarsic up at uh, Chanticleer Garden up in Pennsylvania. We just hit it off about different things we were discussing. And he has been such a wonderful influence in my life because he is such a great tropical fusion gardener mm-hmm. and uses tropical so well and then put me on to other people who could help me to explore that journey even more. He could have easily just walked by. Just for the grace of God, somebody goes a different way and you don't know the relationships you're going to have. Yes, I could have a relationship on social media with, oh, hey, I love your stuff, or you're doing a great job. But that is not the same as having a one-on-one conversation. For young people out there, and I recognize that it's tougher for you, and I recognize that because I have young Gen Z children, that making friendships is harder, that one-on-one, because everybody's got their head in their phones. Mm -hmm. So joining organizations that meet in person Meet online too, but meet in person so that you can have conversations in corners with people. That is important. That's going to make you a better gardener. It's going to give you better opportunities. Recognize the hierarchy in terms of which is going to really affect you on a soul level more. It's conversations like this, Craig. You and I are talking in a digital world, but we're having a conversation like we would across my dining room table. That is so worthwhile. Yes, I've enjoyed it so much. Why don't you tell us about Garden Rant? 
Garden Rant is a collection of writers. It's changed over the years. It started out in 2008 or nine, so it's been around for 16 years. It has been a very successful blog, and it always took a, a different angle to the normal conversations that were going on in horticulture. Sometimes it's been very controversial, and sometimes it's just very easy. We're not a how-to site. Although every once in a while you'll find an article about something that one of us is doing and that we're talking about, but we're not a, here's how to, to plant a tomato. We're more about why do gardeners only plant tomatoes? Mm -hmm. We're going into the why instead of the how to. Sometimes there's political aspects of gardening. I tend to try and stay away from political stuff, just that's my own personal choice, but we have other writers on the team that'll put politics in there sometimes or, or extrapolate out from it. Mm -hmm. We have a correspondence between Scott Berline and I, which is just a serendipitous thing that happened. And it's really interesting how well readers have responded to this. This is a series of letters. They're digital. Between Scott and I, neither one of us see the letter before it goes online. We've been doing this for about three years. We give each other a lot of grief. But we also talk about the backstory of what's going on in our garden. He is in the Midwest. I am in the Mid-Atlantic. We have slightly different zones with different weather and different aspects to gardening. Mm -hmm. It started because he's also a columnist for Horticulture Magazine, and he wrote a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek piece about how Americans needed to get rid of British garden writing. We didn't need to read it. It was just completely nonsense. I read this and I had met Scott at something we were both speaking at. I recognized he had a sense of humor. So I wrote a piece rebutting his tongue-in-cheek thing because I think very strongly that Americans have a lot to learn from British garden writers. It's just depending on what you're taking. We may not be able to grow exactly the same plants, but some of the techniques and thoughts and etc. So I supported that argument, I think, very well. I asked Susan if I could run it on Garden Rant. I wasn't writing for them at the time. I just guest ranted. And she said, oh, absolutely. She put it on there. And to my surprise, Scott rebutted the rebuttal. He did so very funny. And I thought, heck with that. I rebutted that. But I did it in the form of a letter. And we just went from there. And we don't really talk about what we're going to discuss. It's a Dear Gardener series in a yeah. digital age. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes they can be rambling. Sometimes they can be succinct about all different things, usually giving each other a little bit of grief. But that is one very small part of Garden Rant and one that originally they would have never thought about doing. The other parts of it are interesting topics that are coming up in the gardening world. And we also have guest ranters who come in. We invite people to. If there's something that's really making you think and it's a topic in the horticultural industry, and you can write, then submit it to us. We'd love to run it if it works for us. I'm proud to be a part of that site. I really am. It's changed a lot of years. Started with four, gone up to nine, and went back down to five. Now we're eight. We have two British garden writers with us now. Oh. Anne Wareham in Wales, and Ben Probert in Cornwall, Devon area in the UK. That brings a whole new perspective to it. It's worth checking in. There's so many how-to sites. There's so much. It's just, it's just expands. 
the thought. And you might have favorite writers in the group. You don't have to like what everybody's writing. We invite you to comment. If you don't like it, comment. If you do like it, comment. Let us know. I'd very much like to push Garden Rant because I just think it's much of what you and I were talking about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. Craig. Asking why, questioning the hive mind. Marianne, tell us how people may connect with you. At Marianne.Wilburn at Instagram. And on Facebook, it's Marianne Wilburn, comma, garden writer. And that's Wilburn with two L's, as in the fire will burn. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And also on Garden Rant, where I'm one of the garden writing team there. Currently at American Horticultural Society's The American Gardener. I'm an opinion columnist there. This has been episode 144, Breaking the Garden Mold, a conversation on garden constraints and adaptations with Marianne Wilburn on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Marianne. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.